Amen. Thanks, Dan. Uh, Well, good morning. And this morning we are going to be opening up John's Gospel together. And we are now in chapter five. And for those of you thinking, oh, hang on a minute, Andrew only just started this series last week. Um, All the rest of them are online. I do encourage you on the website. You can go to the little resources section. You can catch yourselves up to where we've got to. Um, But every autumn, we're going to be dipping back into John's Gospel. And uh, perhaps we could have given this series the tagline, finding life. Because John, when he wrote this gospel, uh, right at the end he says, oh, there's tons of things I didn't squeeze into this gospel, but these things are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Pretty incredible statement as to why he wrote this gospel and it's why we're studying it, but more than that, We believe as we open the word of God that we encounter him in it. So I'm going to give us a quick bringing us up to speed with what's happened so far in chapter five. Um, Jesus has gone to Jerusalem and it's one of the big Jewish festivals. And in Jerusalem, there is Bethesda, which is a pool. And we're told in the scripture that a great number of people who were blind or lame or paralyzed used to lay here hoping for healing. And Jesus sees a man there and he has been an invalid for 38 years. And he asks him, do you want to get well? And the man says, well, I've no one to help me and someone always gets there first. And Jesus says to him, get up, pick up your mat and walk. And at once the man was cured. He picked up his mat and he walked. The day on which this took place was the Sabbath. And so the Jewish leaders said to the man who had been healed, not, wow, God's done a mighty thing. Isn't it incredible that you've been healed? No, they said, it's the Sabbath. The law forbids you from carrying your mat. You're a sinner. But he replied, the man who made me well said to me, pick up your mat and walk. And we know that that's what he did. And as Andrew picked up last week, the Jewish leaders didn't like this and they start to persecute Jesus for healing the man on the Sabbath. And in his defense, Jesus is provocative. He says, my father God is working and so am I. I just do what I see him doing. My father who loves me brings the dead back to life. And so I'm a life giver too. Even more than that, he says, Actually, it isn't my father who's judging. He's entrusted all judgment to the son and gives him all authority. Jesus has got the most fear-inducing role imaginable. He instructs them to honour the son. For those who don't honour the son are not honouring the father who sent him. His words are powerful. And he says a time is coming when we're all going to face judgment. And we either receive life or condemnation. And so as we open up this next bit in chapter five, I want you to take two questions into the text that that have gone before. And they are, do you want to be well? And will you honor the son and come to him to find life? So let's hear the words of Jesus in John chapter 5, verses 30 to 47. They're going to be up on the screen for you to read along with me. By myself, I can do nothing. 
I judge only as I hear, and my judgment is just. For I seek not to please myself, but him who sent me. You could preach a whole sermon right there. If I testify about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who testifies in my favor. And I know that his testimony about me is true. You have sent to John, and he's talking about John the Baptist, and he has testified to the truth. Not that I accept human testimony, but I mention it that you may be saved. John was a lamp that burned and gave light, and you chose for a time to enjoy his light. I have testimony weightier than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to finish, the very works that I am doing, testify that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself testified concerning me. You've never heard his voice, nor seen his form, nor does his word dwell in you, for you do not believe the one he sent. You study scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me. Yet you refuse to come to me to have life. I do not accept glory from human beings, but I know you. I know you do not have the love of God in your hearts, I've come in my Father's name, and you do not accept me, but if someone else comes in his own name, you will accept him. How can you believe, since you accept glory from one another, but do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? But do not think I will accuse you before the Father. Your accuser is Moses, on whom your hopes are set. If you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. But since you do not believe the words he wrote, how are you going to believe what I say? Let's pray. Oh, Father, we thank you for the gift of your scriptures. We thank you that as we encounter you and have conversations with you in scripture, we are changed. We thank you that you provoke us in love because you don't want us to settle. You want us to step into healing You want us to step into fullness of life with you. Ultimately, you want us to be saved by knowing you and your sacrifice for us. This morning, Holy Spirit, as we open up these scriptures together, will you fill us? We thank you that you are here with us. Would you be prompting us and nudging us and encouraging us? Would you be speaking heavenly truth to us? Lord God, what's just of me, have it just blow away on the wind, but what is of you, plant deep in our hearts. Let it grow to something beautiful. We trust you, God, to speak. We're leaving room for you to speak to us this morning. Come have your way with us, Lord. Amen. That's quite the scripture. But if we don't see the Bible and find Jesus there, and not just in the Gospels, but in the whole of his word. If we don't see it's about Jesus and have a real living relationship with him, if we don't come to his word expecting to encounter him, then reading it is going to be a dry academic activity. And that's not what he's offering us. He's offering us 
life. He says he has come that we might have life and have it to the full. And there's two Greek words for life. There's the word bios, from which we get biological life, meaning it's this condition of being alive and not dead. It's existing in this time and space. And we get the word zoe, meaning full and abundant, purposeful living. It's fulfilling, it's open-hearted, it's richness, it's not merely existing, it's life to the full. And Jesus says the way to find this Zoe life is by coming to him. But maybe this morning that leaves you saying, well, how can I really know? How can I really know that he is who he says he is? Whether this is even possible? How can I really know that Jesus is God? How can it be that this historical man that we know was born in a place and a time in history is also the creator and sustainer of the universe? really good question and it's hard to get our heads around but imagine being them back then seeing a physical man before you doing these things making these claims this man who they feel is showing blatant disregard for God's law by working on the Sabbath and calling somebody else to too he's calling Jesus he's calling God his dad surely that's blasphemy he's saying he's equal with God And more than that, he's saying that all judgment, the judgment of all of humanity is going to fall to him. Well, our passage tells us that he knows us. He starts out by saying he can't testify about himself. Otherwise, we would have believed him already. The cynics would just say, well, of course he would say that. He's talking about himself. So here, Jesus who says, I'm not seeking to please myself, but him who sent me, humours the crowd. He calls up four witnesses as evidence supporting his case. Now, Jewish law is saying you've got to have at least two or three witnesses to be taken seriously. So he's just chucking in a bonus one for free. But with each witness, as we go through them, there's a challenge for us this morning. Will we accept it? And if so, what are we going to do with that? So witness one, he calls his people. Now John the Baptist was given to you and what he says is true. Earlier in this season, we looked at John the Baptist's life, that he came as a witness to the light. He said, I'm not the Messiah, but Jesus is. I'm just the signpost. And the people at the time were really excited. They hadn't had a prophet for a really long time. So many of them really embraced John. But what they did was many refused to see where he was pointing them. Or more specifically, to whom he was pointing them. As he showed them Jesus. And now there are countless witnesses. There are billions of them that can point us to Jesus. To declare that he is who he says he is but will we believe them? And as a people of faith, how are we sharing this good news? Because statistically, the most regularly used means of people coming to faith is the testimony of others, how they've encountered Jesus, the change that he has brought about in their life. D.T. Niles um, gives this description. It's really one beggar showing another beggar where to find bread. If you've found this life for yourselves, 
How are you showing others where to find it too? Witness two, we'll rattle through this because it's got lots of challenges at the end. Witness two is his works. He says, for the works that my father has given me to finish, they're the works that I'm doing. They testify that the father sent me. He tells us that in verse 36. And we know as Jesus hangs on the cross, as he conquers the power of sin and death, he cries out, tetelestai. It means it is finished. It's done. It's paid in full. If you were there seeing him do all that he did, wouldn't that be evidence enough? But we know many turned away in disbelief. And there's also a challenge, I think, here for us this morning, particularly in the Western church, that Jesus said we are going to do even greater things. Have we got an appetite to expect the miraculous, to seek him for it, to see others moved to faith by it? Sometimes we are bold and are, com- and are confident in our prayers for our fellow believers, but do we share that same boldness in asking God to move in the lives of our friends that don't know him yet? Witness number three, his father. God's been speaking about Jesus, but Jesus says they've not heard him and they've not seen him. But we can hear. We can hear God through the power of the Holy Spirit, through the gift of his scriptures to us. The Bible tells us that the Holy Spirit will dwell in us and make God known to us. He will witness, witness to the truth. But will we make room for him to speak? and allow our hearts to be convicted by his truth. Finally, witness number four is called, and it's the scriptures. His word doesn't dwell in them because they don't believe him. He says, you study the scriptures diligently because you think in them that you're going to find eternal life, but these scriptures are written about me. Jesus is the word made flesh. And we know it's possible to study the scriptures and to miss the whole point. I think Luther says it's like the coming to the cradle of God. We can come, we can inspect the cradle, we can look at that manger, but we can forget to worship the baby inside. It's ironic, really, that Jesus, who has just finished saying, I've got all authority to judge, has just allowed himself be the one on trial, giving supporting evidence about who he is. But really, in this passage, who's judging who? Because next comes the alternative trial of the ones that are watching, the ones that are listening, the ones who are choosing to either follow him, ignore him, or not believe him. Or worse, those in the crowd that will persecute him. He concludes saying, even though there's all this evidence, you refuse to come to me for life. Why would they do that? Why do we do that? Well, Jesus here gives us four reasons. He says, you aren't filled with his love, so you're not going to put him first. He says, you accept other people, but you don't accept me. He says, you're more bothered by others' opinions than by his. And he says, you've put your hope in all the wrong places. 
And I think on the slide I put Jesus' four accusations, but I maybe should have changed that to observations. Because Jesus has said to them, I'm not coming to accuse you. And he said, I'm coming and I'm sharing this because I want you to find life. I want you to be saved. So we remember with this challenge that comes to us from Jesus too. That is his desire for us. He wants us to know his salvation. He wants us to come into loving relationship with us, with him. But he also doesn't want us to settle in the place that we've been. He doesn't want us to be like that man that has waited 38 long years for healing. He's been looking for it in the wrong places. He's sat by a pool that the pagans believed gave healing. He's made a whole bunch of excuses, but he's not been living life in all its fullness and the fullness that Jesus promises him. And he offers us that same fullness. So let's encourage the Holy Spirit just to be challenging our hearts this morning. Are there questions that we need to be asking of ourselves? Not because God wants us to be shamed, but because God wants us to come in repentance before him so that we can receive his mercies afresh and step into the freedom that he has won for us. So he says they don't have the love of God in their hearts so that they're not going to be putting him first. Receiving love from God and giving our love to God is transformative. It moves it from being a transactional or legalistic acquaintance to a loving, living relationship. Until we fully accept that the Lord of all creation loves us, truly loves us, that he loves us because he loves us, because he loves us, we're going to struggle with identity and we're going to struggle with worth. And as a result of that, we're going to struggle by trying to prove ourselves constantly and being a little too self-reliant. But Jesus' love and the love of the Father is equipping. And we love because he first loved us. So maybe the question there for you is, are you opening yourself up to encounter this life-changing love of God for you? the free gift available to you. Second observation Jesus makes is you accept people, but you're not accepting me. I think generally we accept what's easy, but accepting God means challenge. It means a changed and a new way of life. It means knowing God is not just about trying to squash him into what little room we can make available to him but it's about surrendering our plans to him and letting go, living a new life that is centered on him. He's asking you to give up something, to make a sacrifice, but he's also offering you something so much more valuable. He's saying you can enter a new identity as a child of God, the one that you are planned for, the one that you're purposed to live as says you live as a, as a child of the most high and you get all the authority that comes with that. Where are the areas today that you're struggling to let go of things? Where's it hard to accept God's sovereignty over our lives and bow to our true king? Thirdly, he comes back to them again saying, you know, you're more bothered 
by other people's opinions than you are by God's. Ouch. It says verse 44, since you accept glory from one another, but you do not seek the glory that comes from the only God, the source of all glory or goodness or mercy or light. And I'm just going to say even and especially, I think, when it comes to religion. Because theirs had become a religion all about human merit. I can strive, I can earn it, I can do it by myself. I can look down on those that aren't doing as well as me. They developed a thoroughly human system with something that should have been gloriously given glory to God. And what they'd done is they'd pushed him out so much that there was actually no room for God anymore. But to accept God's good news for us means laying down our pride. It means accepting that Jesus is the only way to the Father. It means that doing good things and trying really hard, although sometimes those things are wonderful and glorious and a great way to worship God, they don't cut it. And I think all of that goes against the part of us that still loves to kick back on anybody telling us that we can't do something. It sparks up that bit of us going, well, well, I'll show you, because I'm quite capable, thank you very much. It takes a lot to lay that stuff down before God. But worse, sometimes we can accept that freedom that Jesus has won for us. We can accept that this is a great and a glorious gift from him. And then we can go back to old habits. We can end up entering a holier-than-thou competition, feeling superior to others that we feel are more sinful than us, pointing out others' sin. But in the process, being clearly, completely blind to the whopping great sin of our pride. Perhaps we can find ourselves fretting about how people will review the prayer that we pray, rather than really releasing ourselves to express our hearts to God impressing others by how well we know his scriptures rather than having them written on our hearts and using them lovingly. We'd be right at this point to hear the challenge to examine our hearts. Am I actually seeking glory from God or from other people? Are my actions seeking to bring him glory or to just take it for myself? And maybe this doesn't resonate because maybe it's the other side of pride that is a stumbling block for you. Maybe we are filled with anxiety that people will discover us to be fake. That it feels like there's a huge gap between how others publicly perceive us and our walk with Jesus and our ability to do a whole bunch of stuff and how we privately feel in relationship with him. Will we humble ourselves before God and ask him to move by his spirit and bring the transformation that only he brings? Help us to know that promise that he's never going to leave us or forsake us from Hebrews and trust him to bring about transformation. Finally, Jesus says in verse 45, you're putting your hope in all the wrong places. You've got it wrong. You're ignoring the very words of Moses. And you're saying that you hold him in high honor and he's going to be there interceding for you and you're pinning your hopes on him. But he says, well, if you believe Moses, you'd believe me because he's written about me. 
He says, but since you don't believe what he wrote, how are you going to believe what I say? How often do we choose which bits of the Bible we are going to believe and trust in? And which bits will just sideline because they don't quite fit with how we want life to work? This section about Moses is possibly pointing Jesus, uh, pointing, uh, Jesus pointing them to a passage from Deuteronomy. Uh, chapter 18, verse 15 says this, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your fellow Israelites. You must listen to him. But it's possibly Jesus just being a lot more general. There's a very distinctive message that runs through what Moses wrote and taught. And part of that is the law, and this is a lot of our focus today. And let's be really super clear here. The law that God gives to Moses is a really good thing. It helps us understand what the Father wants from us, how we can live in a way that pleases him and for society to work. But it's not as it became, something to measure our self-worth with or puff ourselves up with how well we're doing or look down on ourselves and feel that, how could God possibly use me because I'm struggling to keep these commandments? No. The law's there to point us to Jesus. It's there to help us see that we are completely stuffed without him. That we can never keep all these rules in our own strength. That we need his love and his saving work on the cross to save us. Which is why actually the second focus of Moses' writings, and maybe not the one we first think of, is sacrifice. So much of his works focuses on, if this is what you've done, this is how you make it right with God. But how will our final debts be paid? They're paid through Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. That's what Moses is pointing to. The fault of those he's speaking to then was they ignored all these signs about Jesus in the scriptures. All those signposts pointing them to accepting that he is who he said he is. And we need scripture to help us to walk into the presence of God. The God who loves us and saves us. To move past just knowing about him and move into knowing him. To receive this lavish love that God has for us and to love him in return. All of Jesus' accusations sound harsh, don't they? Summarizing them, he says, Well, you've never heard God's voice. You don't see him. His word doesn't live in you. You don't have his love in your heart. You refuse to come to me. And you love getting praise from one another, but you don't see praise from God. It's not so meek and mild that the real Jesus is provocative. You don't get killed for healing people and generally being a nice guy. You get killed for changing and challenging the powers that are ruling in a way that isn't God's way. You know, God loves us too much to let us keep missing out on his best for us. When he sees us living and existing and getting by, but not really living, he'll bring challenge because he loves us. He loves us just as we are. We're welcome to come to him exactly as we are. But he loves us far too much to leave us that way. So we receive these challenges today from somebody who loves us beyond measure, but probably wants to poke us on a few things to see us walking in the freedom that he has bought for us at great cost. 
come to him, be saved by him, the one who is the bringer and giver of life. Because believing in Jesus and all that he has done for us moves us from death into life as his new creations. And it's miraculous. And at some point, likely all of us will die physically. But we can enter death with a sure hope that we will live on eternally with him. So what are we going to do with all this evidence? How are we going to respond today to the call to come to him and have life? How are we going to respond to those questions that I asked us at the start? Do we want to be well? For God to heal us from the things that have stopped us living in fullness of life with him? Or are we going to wait around 38 years by a pool making excuses? Will we honour the son and come to find life in him? Are we ready to stop making those excuses like the man did who went, well, actually, this is the guy who told me to get up and walk, so I'm going to do what he says. I'm going to be obedient to his call. Are we going to take action? Because there's the possibility of miraculous, life-changing healing here in Jesus' presence. But we have to stop just sitting on the brink of it. Are we going to believe and obey and come? He's bringing about new creation. He's bringing about new life. Are we going to grab it? Because he's not looking for perfect faith. He's asking for small acts of obedience to get up and to come. We don't have to have all the answers yet. In fact, maybe part of us laying down our pride is admitting that we don't have all the answers, but we do want to work them, all our questions through with him because we know he does. That we're going to trust him to love us in all of our questions. And perhaps for some of us, we're ready to move our questioning on. Questions aren't a bad thing. It's often how we grow in our faith, but maybe we're going to move from what do I think about Jesus? To what does Jesus think about me? What's God's view of what's best for me and my relationships and my life and my plans? What are his ones? Will I surrender my preformed ideas about my life and how life works and stop just trying to squeeze him into my framework rather than opening myself up to centre on him and what he's doing? Will I stop putting me and my understanding at the centre and rather seek him and his revelation? He sometimes um, gives us a nudge because we make faith a lot about us and about our ability and whether we can believe it and whether we're enough. And he says, you just need to fix your eyes on me because I am enough. Mother Teresa has a, a great Um, quote and advice on this she says give yourself fully to God he will use you to accomplish great things on the condition that you believe much more in his love than in your own weakness will we do that will we make room for him will we lay down our pride we accept our need of him Will we accept him and let him be above everything else in our lives? Asking him, God, where are you at work? And how do I get to join in with what you're doing? 
going to pray for us as we respond and as we trust that the Spirit will be prompting us and leading us to the things that he wants us to respond to. And then I want to bring um, you some words from a song that's been running around in my head for ages. And I almost shared it last week, uh, but then part of me was like, actually, if I was not feeling in a great place, I'd be really cynical if someone bringing this word that came with an agenda, but it hasn't left me. So I'm going to say that it's God speaking, and I'm going to give it to you anyway. Um, dear Lord Jesus, we thank you that you, you are a God who speaks. Father, we thank you that you love us beyond measure, that you desire to see your family grow as we come to know you for ourselves, that you welcome us in as beloved children, that you give us scripture as this wonderful, wonderful gift to encounter you in. Lord God, I pray, Father, guard our hearts that we wouldn't just hear a whole bunch of accusation this morning, but we would hear loving discipline from you, our Father who loves us. He doesn't want to see us trapped in stuff. He wants to see us freed to live for your glory and to live life in all its fullness. We pray, Father, we want to be well. We want to honour you. We want to honour your Son. We want to come to him to find life in joyful thanks. Lord Jesus, we know that you are the light and life of all mankind. You're the source of all life. We pray, give us boldness and courage to come before you. And whether that is running in passionately, yes, I'm for you, I'm on this, let's do it. Or whether it is a slow, stumbly crawl, but still movement towards you. Lord God, I thank you for your grace for us in all of that. Help us to encounter you in your word that our hearts are gonna burn with love for you. Change us, motivate us to join in in your mission to see our lives and this world transformed by your power to change lives. Spirit, fill us up, equip us, nudge us, encourage us. We want to make room for you to work. We want to make room for you to bring us breakthrough. We want to make room for you to do what only you can do. Help us to hear your voice speaking to us. Amen. So the words of the song, it's not one that we sing here at the Oak, but that God really put on my heart last weekend, came with a message of, we were singing, you know, Jesus, you're the only name that I'm going to sing. It's all about you and declaring his goodness. I felt that there were some people here, maybe a few of us actually, that just had that guilt of being like, actually, I've not made it all about you. I, have, I am so busy, and I've filled my life with so much stuff, and I'm just cramming you in around the edges, and it almost makes it painful to be here in worship because I'm so aware of how badly I'm doing. And I felt the need just to speak the truth over that, that the enemy loves to grab a hold of us and tell us, you know, you're rubbish at this. Of course he couldn't want you. Of course he couldn't use you. God is light and he is life and he is second chances and he is the power that equips us. He's actually the power that squashes down all that stuff that says it's all about you and what you can do. And says, just come to me. Come to me. Let me heal you. Let me breathe fresh life into you. Go again. Don't be trapped in shame. Guilt is actually a really helpful gift I think the Father gives us because it brings us back on our knees before him. But shame keeps us trapped there. 
He's won freedom for us. Let's step boldly into that. So here's your words. Here is where I lay it down. It's every burden, every crown. This is my surrender. Here's where I lay it down. It's every doubt and every lie. It's my surrender and I will make room for you to do whatever you want to do. Have your way, Jesus. Have your way with us because we surrender, Jesus. Shake up the ground of all my tradition. Break down the walls of all my religion because your way is better. And I'll make room for you to do whatever you want to do. Here's where I lay it down. You're all I'm chasing now. This is my surrender. Lord God, as, as we come to a time just of responding, we are trusting in you to help those words to resonate with us, the right ones that are for us. We are trusting you with the challenges and the questions to be prompting us and moving forward. Lord, we don't want to leave this place the same as we came. Come and meet with us. Give us boldness and stripping our hearts bare before you, knowing it's the safest place to do that. We love you, Lord Jesus, and we trust that you will work to bring about our transformation and help us to step into freedom with the plans to share that with others in this wonderful family business you call us to be a part of. Amen.